You know, the people who end up listening the most to podcasts are people who have commutes. Mm-hmm. You know? And I don't, I mean, I guess I commute to and from Boston, but usually I'm sleeping on the train yeah. rather than listening to something. So, um, so I don't really have time to listen to podcasts, the long form kind of thing. Well, and you have, I mean, uh, you know, I find, because I, I also, um, I interview a lot of um, artists and, and cartoonists um, and people who have a, a job where they sit in front of, you know, paper and can kind of tune out for mm-hmm. five to six hours at a time. Mm-hmm. It's it's good for them, but I assume that you, your mind has to be pretty pretty active while you're doing what you're doing. Well, especially like doing something. Are you recording? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> uh, we ease in. Yeah. We ease in. Well, I mean, especially doing something that involves sound and silence, and then you can't really have other sounds or silences yeah. sort of interrupting that. Um, so, I don't know. I guess I yeah. have to uh, find time. It's also like I need, if I'm making music, I also need time where I'm not listening to anything or else it just becomes too subject to everything I'm hearing. You, know? mm. um, you, you said si- you said sound and, and silence and wondering what you, what you mean specifically by, by silence. It's just, just, just uh, is that just actively not listening to music? Uh, well, what I mean is, like, when you're putting music together, silence is one of the ingredients, mm. you know, so, uh, or sound, you know, sound and its absence, that's yeah. kind of what you're dealing with, uh, and what kinds of sounds, of course, and when and how much, and all this, you know, this is putting it very, in very strange terms, <laughs> but yeah like, yeah, like it's some kind of, um, I don't know, uh, uh, like con- like mixing cement or something like that. Uh, you need uh, water and you need cement yeah, powder that's right. or whatever that's goes right. into cement. <laughs> yes, yeah, so... Uh, but I also find that just I need to have my head clear. Mm. So, um, as you see, there's a lot of blank space on these walls. <laughs> well, it's an interesting room. This yeah, there's a, a lot kind of, of like This is a sort of un... I don't know. It's just uh, this room is kind of the result of all the other rooms, which have a little bit more order to them. This is like where everything goes that doesn't belong anywhere else. Um, it was it's nominally the piano room, and mm-hmm. there are these like boxes that are th- still unpacked after three years that are under the piano. Oh uh, yeah, it's dry. I can't I can't it's even look at them. It's driving me to, crazy. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's right. I, I just I you know I moved two months ago and. I had immediately. I had to get everything out of the boxes. I couldn't. Yeah. I couldn't look at boxes. Yeah. Well, I don't look at them. <laughs> you know, I tend to sit on the other side of the yeah. piano. <laughs> well, that's fair. Um, <laughs> but we, but yeah, we we've got this nice this nice piano, and you know, obviously, I commented on on it coming in because, as, as I had said before, you don't see a lot of pianos in houses or apartments in, in New York City but um, what, what 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 interests me is that I mean obviously you're doing a fair amount of composing on here but you're also you're also just sitting in front of the computer and composing yeah I mean I you know these days um, when you put music together I mean you can do it on paper mm-hmm. uh, just like you can write poems on paper or you can do them on a computer just like you can write poems on Microsoft Word it's not a big deal that it's on a computer. It's just like that's the <laughs> sort of like, you know, you do use a computer to do everything right now yeah. to order dinner and to 
whatever um get directions to somewhere you know it's not a big deal that you use your computer to put notes together um but for me uh i guess there's this you know i'm a pianist who com- who makes music mm-hmm. uh, both as an improviser and a composer so i uh spend a lot of time with the instrument but then i also spend a lot of time away from the instrument mm-hmm. in order to get myself out of the habits i have as an instrumentalist because uh, they can kind of become um limiting you know if you don't find ways to break yourself out of them so you know i have to uh, it's not that i have to but i choose to often just um reach outside of that hmm. pianistic kind of tendency and you sort of look at um putting music together from some other angle well, I, I this is probably a very very basic question um coming from you know a bit, bit, bit of an outsider but uh i, I guess my idea of my, my my notion of a composer is somebody sitting hmm. behind a piano and and you know uh trying things out hmm. on there well um you know because i'm a player uh and because especially because i'm an improviser there are, it is true that a lot of ideas are generated at the instrument but um it's also true that a lot of ideas come from elsewhere you know mm-hmm. and uh whether it's about rhythms that are not specific to the piano or you know if i'm creating music for other instruments then the piano be- can become this kind of um mm. uh in a way a red herring like you can start hearing things that work on the piano that have a very different impact when you hear them in a string quartet, for mm-hmm. example, or a wind quintet, or something like that, or or from a like bassist and drummer and guitar player, you know. So, um, so you know, I like to kind of uh, think about what's inherent to the instruments I'm working with. Mm-hmm. Uh, what kinds of affordances do they have? Like, um, you know, what are the most resonant sounds on the upright bass, for example. Or even what could I not get away with on the piano? It's an opportunity to yeah. spread out and, and have players perform something that you couldn't necessarily perform on your own instrument, yeah. in a sense. Yeah, definitely. Or that someone else who's better than me at my <laughs> own instrument could do instead of me, which is also, I've been getting into that lately. <laughs> I can get used to just sitting in the audience. So, so, how, so how long have you been playing the piano for? And you still, you still, you still recognize your limitations on the instrument. Oh yeah, well, see, I wasn't. I'm a weird, I'm a pretty weird case. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't. I never had training on the piano hmm. at all, so I don't really know how to play correctly on the instrument. Uh, you know, from the sort of like normal. I don't know, not normal, but like the Western pedagogy sense of like how to play piano. I am not that guy who does that i'm just um i just figured things out very you know little by little over a very long period of time like i'm talking about like 40 years mm. you know i'm 43 i'm pretty sure that the first time i put my hands on the instrument i was three or four you know i don't know for sure no one does because it wasn't an official thing yeah um and meanwhile, I was also taking, I started violin lessons when I was three. So that was another thing that um, was a part of my life for a long time. 
um, and also sort of structured my musical understanding. Uh, so anyway, uh, the piano has been this kind of like lifelong, um, what should I say, companion, <laughs> or like uh, just sort of an extension of the self or something like that for me that I, it's not, the, you know, like I wouldn't say I'm a perfect person, you know, but so I, I wouldn't say that I'm like virtuoso at um, answering emails or, you know, cooking <laughs> or things like that either. Uh, but I try to do better every day. I guess I'll put it that way. <laughs> yeah. And the difference, the difference is like, you know, is there's the difference between being as big a virtuoso at, uh, at answering emails and being a virtuoso at the piano is there's a very, we have an idea of what a virtuoso behind the piano looks like. Well, you know, I've, I'm actually kind of interested in pianists who have kind of interrogated or sort of disrupted notions of virtuosity and brought something else that's, um, a very different kind of musician musicianship hmm. um you know my number one hero is am i looking at him right now yeah <laughs> Thelonious monk yeah. is the, the only piece of visual art in this room yeah. is a photograph of Thelonious monk um which i've had for about 20 years uh and here it is sort of like uh, off in the corner up on top of an <laughs> air filter but he's always here yeah um and uh so he is a major point of reference is major touchstone and someone i've thought about every day for the last 25 or more years or something mm. and uh very i don't know just brilliant m- maker of music um people from the outside would watch him playing and think well he's not playing right or something uh but people who knew better or who could kind of just open themselves to what he was doing would be deeply affected by it you know and uh and he was basically ended up becoming one of the main architects of this music that's been called jazz uh because of all the influence he had on harmony and rhythm and melody and um interactivity and groove and um playfulness and the spirit behind he it. was just a fun guy to watch the piano is my understanding he got up a lot and <laughs> spun around and <laughs> well there's that but um you know there was a purple purposefulness even behind mm-hmm. stuff like that and it, then if you really delve into his music it's dead serious mm-hmm. i mean there's so much creativity and rigor and brilliance in it you know that and then it the way it his compositions are um at one with his improvisative sensibility his language at the piano uh and what he brought out of his fellow musicians uh it's radical actually he's a, like a radical artist of the 20th century who really uh, is pivotal for me so he's an example like you know, he's not, um, I don't know, uh, Van Clyburn or something like that. That's not what he's after. You know, he's after something else um, and always was. And, you know, that's part of the black music tradition is, um, f- on the one hand, making your own way, but doing it in a way that communicates. Uh, and that's what's had the most impact on me as a pianist and composer. Is he... Is he what 
cracked it open for you? Is he what? Is he what? Um, did his music make make jazz make make sense for you? Well, uh, I'd been listening, you know, and checking out and studying and trying to understand. Um, I mean, understand or make sense of when you're talking about music. Those aren't the right terms, yeah, because that's not what it is for. Contextualize or it was more that uh, you know I had been listening to a lot of recordings at the mm-hmm. time, like this is mid to late '80s when I was a teenager, and uh, I um, had you know I knew about Herbie Hancock because he was a superstar, still mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. I knew about him from Rocket, and then yeah. I found this record of him playing uh, with some other legends, Ron Carter and Tony Williams, and then a young this young trumpet player was with him named Wynton Marsalis. <laughs> this is like mid-'80s. And uh, so I listened to that album a lot, and I listened to a lot of things of, that were kind of contemporary of that, you know, in that field of music. Uh and I was really, you know, delving into them. And um, but a lot of people were playing these compositions by this guy named Thelonious Monk, including Herbie and uh, Winton and many of these other folks. Um, and uh, so I finally found some recordings of his. This was at the public library. This was where we found things back then. <laughs> uh, so I brought home these LPs of Monk and his ensemble, his different bands, and um, it was just so different from everything. Mm-hmm. You know, even people who claimed to be influenced by him, he didn't sound like them. He didn't sound like anybody. You know, like when you're the way you're told to play jazz, he doesn't sound like that either. He had a whole other way of doing things, a very different logic and a different um, aesthetic. It had a roughness to it. It had a real precision to it. Um, it had this, like I said, dead seriousness. It also was very playful. And uh, it had a unity to it. Just the whole language was really consistent. Like all the, you know, you could instantly identify like, oh, this is Monk's music, no matter what it was that he was doing. Um, so that, to me, it was like, well, there's something here that, I need to study. And then uh, towards, I think it was 88 or 89, this film came out called Straight No Chaser, Mm -hmm. which, uh, you know, it it had its um, shortcomings, but there was a lot of footage of him performing, which I'd never seen before. And uh, now it's much easier to access a lot of that footage on YouTube. But like, you know, whenever that was a quarter century ago, it was harder to f- come by, and so to to see him in action, that it really struck me. It really felt, um, uh, I don't know, it communicated to me yeah. in a way that was instantaneous and almost like involuntary. It wasn't about understanding or contextualizing or anything like that. It was really like it hit me in the gut or something. You know, it hit me in some place I wasn't expecting it to hit me, and I felt like, well, this. You know, partly because of my own kind of peculiar and very personal relationship to the piano that was not studied, per se. That was just sort of, in a way, um, organic. You know, it grew very gradually over years. And um, 
I don't know to see his like he had like some version of that that was you know a hundred years ad- advanced from where I was at mm. and I was like well that seems to be where I should be heading you know where I should where I should, I should set my sights of trying to achieve something like that you know because it seems to have started from something like the same place mm-hmm. um, which isn't to say that he was untutored because that's not true he actually studied music had piano lessons he studied at Ju- Juilliard and stuff like that music theory and knew a lot um, but he also had some uh, some other stuff going on <laughs> <and> <laughs> that was very uh, it was very real it was very um, community you know you know, one thing that I think was a pivotal experience for him when he was a teenager is that he toured with a preacher. Mm. It was just him and this woman who was like a healer. And they toured um, whatever circuit that one does that on in the 1940s, I guess it would have been. Um, early 40s, you know. or uh, So that is like, I, th- I would think that that would be this real pivotal experience for you about you know like reaching a room full of a few hundred people not just to um, play something pretty but actually to make something happen to them mm. you know to actually kind of electrify them and transform them in some An way. actual spirit yes yeah yeah exactly yeah sense. yeah so that kind of quality and you can kind of hear I mean this is sort of like the one of the um things to be understood about african-american music is that a lot of it happens or is developed or cultivated in in spaces like that mm-hmm. you know that is the not church. yeah not yeah. the rec- recording studio yeah. but this more ritualized kind of space which even these clubs can be like that you know at their best can really be more of a ritual kind of atmosphere where something is being conjured yeah you know? It's inter- I mean, it's, it, it's interesting, you know, that you're at a, a point now, I and mean, you just played, bam. Yeah. You know, you play these, these large halls, and I assume that you 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 play in front of a lot of people who, in a lot of ways, are very removed from, from from that from that idea from that sort of small room, jazz club, scene. And is it, is is it possible to have that same sort of breakthrough, that same kind of connection, in in um you know, more academic or, um, you know, a, a place with a, a space where it costs you a hundred dollars to, to get inside. <laughs> well, sometimes you have to kind of, um, ambush the audience into, <laughs> into like suddenly having an experience they weren't mm. expecting to have, you know? Um, so we do that. We try yeah. to do that. You did. How, how, how did that, um, how did that play out in that the last uh, performance that you did at BAM? Did you make it? I, I didn't, unfortunately. Um, well, you kind of had to be there. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to... Uh, yeah. But it's partly like... I mean, when, uh, for one thing, like as an improviser, um, you just have to open yourself to all the forces in the room, mm. which is partly about all the energy of all the people. I mean, this sounds really hokey or touchy-feely or like I sound like a hippie or something. You're a musician, you're allowed to. But it's real, I have to tell you. I mean, I'm here to tell you because I've been doing (laughs) it. I've been playing gigs for, 
I mean, I've been playing concerts since I was, you know, various kinds, like whether yeah. it was a school orchestra or being in a rock band <laughs> or, you know, leading my own groups for the last 20 years. Um, uh, so I've played music for most of my life. And I guess I've learned how to hear, or I've just been trying to learn, and, and you know, I keep trying harder to hear the audience mm. and uh, listen to them and, and open myself, basically, like, interact with them. Even, not in the sense of, like, hey, is anybody here from Queens or something like that, <laughs> but more, like, really, can you hear them breathing mm. and stuff like that? Because, actually, what music does is it... Uh, it transforms your sense of time passing and not just in this mental way but actually kind of takes over your body like the rhythms of your body and so you can hear people breathing differently mm. or just moving differently or not moving or something you know like you, you can hear everyone become still at the same time and when you have a moment like that it's like well okay we just all experienced something together so now we've bonded to a certain extent, mm. you know? So things like that, um, what, because, especially because I'm an improviser, it means that I can respond to that, mm. you know? I can make a choice about what to do based on that or the absence of it, you know? Like how do we get ourselves to that point so that then we can sort of start fresh from this sort of more unified experience of time, <laughs> uh, you can hear when it's not there also like mm. when it's know, not working you mean or just when uh, people aren't breathing together yeah yeah I can't I can't help it and this is this is probably you know because of my my on again off again relationship with meditation but it does sort of remind me of that in the sense that um, you know when you first when you first start attempting a, a meditation practice it's breathing is mm-hmm. is the essential part yeah um and i guess it's i guess this this plays into the idea of silence because it's something that you um is involuntary and we just don't we don't tend to think about it we don't we i, I guess we aren't are really in tune naturally with the, the natural rhythms well who who's we well, who we, are you, you know, in, in, the, in, the, in the sense that in the sense that um you know these these things are uh, are, are going on without any um, any interaction from us, you know, and that, um, you know, uh-huh. you, you don't, it would drive you crazy if you walked around the city and were just thinking about your breathing the, the whole uh-huh. time. You wouldn't get, any, get any, anything done. Yeah, yeah, I suppose. But you, it's not about, but think of, you know, focusing on your breathing is not about thinking about your breathing. It's actually about experiencing it and and in a way it's done to quiet other parts of your mind or whatever uh but i would i guess like it's part of the reason that we're um distracted is that music has this peculiar role for us these days and when i say these days i mean like the last hundred years because we have these records (laughs) that kind of remove music from bodies, right? That, uh, hmm. And that's how we've gotten used to experiencing music is as something re- removed from the social or from like a sense of being together in a physical space. 
And uh, that is actually, it's almost like we've, um, we've allowed ourselves to forget how music works. Mm. Uh, like what it really does in the sense of um, the shared experience of being present. You know? we, we also, I mean, we also take it for granted in the sense that it's ever present at this point and that, you know, you walk into a supermarket and, it's, yeah. there and it's, it's just always, always there in the background. This is something, this is something I spoke about with, with, um, David, David Cope a while, a while ago. Let the record show he's pointing to David Cope's 20 <laughs> year old laptop, which I bought from him in 95 or something like that. Um, but, uh, yeah, why I mean, is it out? You may ask. <laughs> I may ask that too. I'm not sure why it's out, but here it is. How did you? You know, you know what? So I think what it was, yeah, was. How did you acquire that? No, because he. Um, it was a West Coast thing. Uh, he mm. sent out. Berkeley, sent out right? Yeah, I was at UC Berkeley, and he sent out an email. Who wants to buy this thing? And I said yes, and so I got it. And. Uh, but why is it out now? I think it's because it was in an old laptop bag that mm. I wanted to use. They used to make them in very different shapes back then in the mid-90s. Yeah, much, much, <laughs> much larger. I'm, everything I say in this interview makes me seem, seem really old. It's really strange. I'm, I'm not, I don't feel that old, but I guess I've been around. Well, well, it, you know, if it makes you feel old, it's, it, it's funny. In the, the, the release that I got, um, you, they, I think they called you a, a young, young composer. Well, that's good. So composers it's all get, relative, right? Composers get to be old. Yeah. <laughs> so right in the scheme of things, compared to Elliot Carter, who just passed away, um, you know, I've yeah. got plenty of time. Yeah. Um, actually, this is on a sort of related note, and, and since your your, your, um, your daughter made a cameo earlier... Um, Where's where where's where's she she at musically? I mean, have you have you felt the need to kind of pass on um, all all this knowledge that you have? Well, she plays violin. She's taken lessons for about six years. She's ten now, or almost ten. And um, yeah, she started the way I started on violin. She hasn't gravitated to banging on the piano like I did, <laughs> um, but she sings a lot too. She's in choruses and things like that. Um, and she gets to play now in a small orchestra mm. of, you know, upper elementary school kids. So that's really cool. I, you know, I got, I first got to play in an orchestra when I was around that age. I think I was in fifth grade. So, and that really, I remember that, that for me kind of reactivated my, by that time, very jaded relationship with the violin because I'd when already were, when you were ten, when I was old, ten or eleven, I'd already <laughs> been playing it for six or seven years, and that yeah. was pretty. I don't know. You get this point of frustration with it because actually, the way it's taught, you know, on the, in this one-on-one kind of situation, you're just sort of um, impelled to try to be perfect mm. at playing these songs that are two and three hundred years old mm-hmm. from Europe. And if you're not playing these old European dead white male compositions perfectly, then you've somehow failed as a human being or something like that. So that's the sort of thing that like this that kind of gets inculcated through classical music pedagogy. But and so it becomes this like neurosis, you know, the source of like 
self-hatred or something like that. So, but then when you suddenly are in a social environment, like you're playing music with people and for people and among people, you know, then it's like, oh, this is actually awesome. It's awesome to play music with people. It actually is really, it's it's a high. People get high. Off of it. Yeah, and that's what, that's what I was getting at a little bit with um, when I was talking about Professor Cope was just from the standpoint of... Uh, um, and as I was saying to you earlier, my my coming around to classical music has been a relatively new thing, and I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that um, the way we relate to classical music as a culture is as supermarket music is as you know it's, we're, we're we're approaching the holiday season, so it's just this it it um you know it's not as it's not it, it's not a sort of a lively a lively form of music for most people in, in their daily lives it's just kind of an old thing that's that's around yeah well i'm not particularly invested in this thing that's called classical music mm. i mean nor is it particularly invested in me so i'm not going to like <laughs> i'm not here to like yeah proselytize about classical music i mean for me um you know, I mean, I've said it elsewhere, but these things that are called genres are really about mm. communities of people who make music together and have a certain understanding or sensibility or aesthetic about how to do that, a set of priorities about what music can and should do, you know, and how to do it together. So in Western classical music, there's this peculiar division of labor, this sort of like um, bifurcation between what's mm-hmm. called the composer and what's called the performer. Mm-hmm. So then it's sort of like the composer is the brains of the outfit, and the performer is the the limbs, you know, <laughs> or sort of like the anonymous body that does the labor of delivering the composer's ideas. And that's a sort of strange state of affairs. Like it doesn't need to be that way. And we've you know, not, I won't say we because it's not really me. But cla- that's those are sort of the that's the premise on which classical music operates: is that composers can make music, and everyone else receives it. But yeah. I, you know, I, I suppose that a, a, re, a large part of the reason why it's like that is because in a lot of cases there are hundreds of years dividing the composers and and the people performing the music. Well, that's just because of the system of. The, how prestige is conferred on certain works mm-hmm. and not on others. Uh, I just, I guess, I find the whole thing a little bit arbitrary. Mm-hmm. I mean, not to say that there's not something great about um, whoever Beethoven or Brahms or Bach or you know Bartok or <laughs> any of the other guys, but uh, that there's a lot of other ways to make music. I don't want to say it was an obligation that I that I felt that I needed to get um, start listening to classical music, but just you know, in the same sense that you feel like you should read like the great works of literature, that that, that perhaps if I'm not um, if I'm not at least a, attempting with this, that that maybe I'm missing out on on something um, interesting and, and and valuable and and worth my time. Hmm. And it and it took um, well, part of it, it it took that conversation with David Cope, and it took listening to um, you know like. Pablo Casals or Glenn Gould or somebody who was interpreting these old works in, in interesting ways, you know, versus um, what you would see turning on PBS and just seeing an orchestra, orchestra playing it in the hmm. way that it's been played for the past few hundred years. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, 
I guess I'd, I'll feel that way about Bach. Um, and, uh, but I also just feel like there's a lot of brilliance that's much more recent, mm-hmm. that's American, that comes from non-European males <laughs> and females, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that has more to do with today. Mm-hmm. And I guess I don't feel obliged to put the, these so-called great works on any kind of pedestal. Yeah. You know, I think we can listen to them and learn from them, but there's, like I said, there's something arbitrary about the conferring of prestige and value on those works and not on the works of people in our midst, you know. So I uh, I guess I always kind of keep my eyes and ears open when I see those kinds of, um, I don't know, that kind of, uh, those systems of power kind of reinforcing mm. the that that like those values i just think that um in particular you know i guess i'm connected more to the jazz community and african-american artists of the 20th century and 21st century who've uh you know and in very literal ways like not just in the sense of they're on my ipod Mm -hmm. but that they nurtured me literally like they had me in their bands i mean i'm talking about like steve coleman and roscoe mitchell and Wadada Leo Smith and Butch Morris and Amiri Baraka and George Lewis. And, you know, these are people who, like, gave me this very different sense of what music can do. Do, do we run in, are we running into um, the danger of uh, putting jazz on a similar pedestal? You'd mentioned a name earlier. I won't, I won't mention him by name now, but, you know, there are, um, certainly when you're, you're looking at, at the jazz community, there are, sort of the classical players, the people who um, it seems like are kind of more, more interested in, in, in the, in the older styles. Um, do, do we run into that with jazz, you know, with um, listening to people who are still, I mean, you know, granted it's not two, 300 years ago, but it's still, um, you know, 50, 60 years ago, people, people, um, a lot of people listening to jazz aren't necessarily um, interacting with the newer stuff. It's you know it's uh, I'm guessing in in a lot of cases it's these people who are spending you know um a hundred two hundred dollars to see something at at Lincoln Center versus going and seeing a you know small improv trio. I guess that's just not my experience with mm. this area of music. I mean, I travel all over the place, playing in these kinds of spaces. I mean, mostly in cities, yeah. you know, like not in rural Iowa. I mean. I played in Ames, Iowa once, and we had an excellent audience, actually, but most of the time, like, where we get to play is in cities that have some kind of um, connection to African-American culture and history, and, I mean, I'm talking about when we play in the U.S., uh, and some kind of resonance with the history of the music, so then it's not, like about putting anything on any pedestal it's just about actually remembering and continuity you know like there's Mm -hmm. actually continuity here uh i think that uh there have been efforts to sort of canonize and and um but then there's also been a 
ever-present effort to resist that, you know, and all the people I just named who nurtured me are part of the resistance, you know. They're not part of the canonizing kind of tendency in the music. And, And I guess the other thing is, like, when we talk about this thing that's called jazz talking about something that's undergone extreme rapid change Mm -hmm. over the course of a hundred years you know um you know you you might i mean if you listen back to like lewis armstrong or fletcher henderson recordings from the 20s and then like 10 15 years later you're hearing charlie parker Mm -hmm. and that's like such a radical change in such a short time and then like 10 you know 15 years later than that you're hearing coltrane and miles do, doing like also very radically different stuff and even them from you know album to album yeah and then a couple of years later you hear yeah. ornette coleman and you hear um coltrane undergo his own transformations mm. and miles davis undergo his own transformations and you hear cecil taylor and and you hear also a lot of other things happening like Jimi hendrix and james yeah. brown and you know that actually, to me, it all has a sort of continuity to it, um, in the sense of like across these things that are called genre, there's continuity at any moment. But then, from as you go forward or backward in history, there's a lot of discontinuity too, because there's so much inventiveness as part of the history. Mm-hmm. So I guess the bottom line is I don't really hear it as one style of music or one kind of music i just hear it as this massive history of a community and a history of ideas and also like what we hear as recordings that's just the tip of the iceberg and i know that as a fact because even just from my own life i know that what you've heard of my recordings are the tip of the iceberg you know because a lot of other stuff happens that never gets recorded or never gets heard outside of the room it happens in you know but it's just, if not, if it's just as important, if not more important, in the way that it, the music keeps moving forward. So it's hard for me to think about it as one style. I think the the you know the the genre thing is something that's imposed by the music industry, and it's not really authentic to how people create, you know except when people have this sort of retrospective kind of tendency. But when people are really creating, they're just being true to who they are, you know, and then that just kind of keeps uh, progressing and keeps evolving. We also, I think, in in hindsight, tend to forget that um, in a lot of the cases that you just mentioned, uh, they were met with opposition. They were met with people who, um, at least early on, weren't necessarily uh, embracing these changes from, from these artists. Yeah, yeah, and there's always been happens. there's always been that classical push. You know, people. It's easier to to listen to what you're comfortable listening to, what sounds familiar, for most people right. at least. Yeah, I mean that's all. I, I guess like you know, I'm maybe I'm naive or I don't know. Like I have a, I guess I have a very different experience of music that's mm-hmm. less as a consumer, in the sense of like buying records and living with records or buying mp3s and sort of just that being my primary experience most of what music is for me is something that we experience together in places you know like we either by making it with other people or by hearing it live in a place with other people you know 
So that's a very different... Um, it's not that I don't listen to recordings, but that recordings to me, I just always take them as um, a snapshot of reality. Yeah. And I know that reality is much deeper, you know? I, I know that this was something that you had touched on. I, I did read the Times piece on the on the recent performance, and they... Um, you know, you did you you did touch on um, some of the. I don't know if unrest just sounds like such a kind of a hokey like media term, but a lot of a lot of what's been happening over over the the, the past few months and um, is is that something? Um, you know, I, I think at one point that the words "Black Lives Matter" flashed up on the screen. Um, is, is that something that that informs the music from the creation, or is that mostly? just kind of part of that that live spectacle that we were talking about earlier well in that case uh that particular case it was kind of situation specific Hmm. in the sense um bam commissioned me to make a solo piece as part of this program to, to create a new composition for solo piano that i would perform and uh I guess I just had a different priority, which was actually to use the moment to kind of intervene um, or just sort of bring the energy of th- of what's happening outside into BAM. Because mm. BAM, I think, tends to be a <clears throat> place that's sort of see- you know treated as safe for a certain kind of... Um, genteel like bourgeois society it's an opera house it is an opera house and and, i mean we were playing in the harvey theater but still you know these are like big ticket affairs and they cater to mostly like liberal but wealthy arts going elites what was the the uh, john lennon thing for the people on the balcony rattle rattle your jewelry (laughs) in lieu of applause (laughs) right exactly so it's not like as bad as the opera I mean, it's not like going to the New York Metropolitan Opera. It's more like, um, you know, this is these are people who are open to experimental mm-hmm. art and music and theater and dance and so on. Um, but it's still, uh, you know, basically it's um, it's not really kind of like featuring the man on the street or the, you know, like that kind of energy from the street. It's not that. It's it's a, it's a way to get away from that, and which is p- particularly, um, I don't know, particularly prickly to me because it's in a black neighborhood. It's in Fort Greene, you know, in Brooklyn, and and it's basically, you know, most of the artists that are presented there are not of that community. Yeah. So, so I guess what I felt. I wanted to do with this so-called solo piece was do an anti-solo piece, but mm. basically flood the place or like storm the place with people from the community who otherwise don't get to be there. So that's what we did. Literally inviting them up on stage. Well, it was, uh, I, and it's not just, you know, it was like friend, a lot of my friends mm-hmm. and, um, I worked with a friend of mine who's a choreographer and she corralled, whole bunch of uh, her friends so it was um you know 25 african-american artists doing a die-in on stage that's what we did that was my solo piece 
Speaking of, of neighborhoods and, and communities, what um, what brought you to to Harlem was it was it this um, this sort of lifelong fascination with um, the, the the culture of the area? Well, a lot of my friends and colleagues live here. A lot of artists and musicians who I'm close to, um, and it was where we could afford to buy a house. And we'd been looking for years and saving up and trying to make it work. And we finally found a way to make it work. Are you able to play around the area at all? Are there places for the, the kind of music you create? There's some places. I mean, I did a major project at Harlem Stage, which is on uh, over at near City College. It's on Convent, 135th and Convent. Um, so they've been supporting me, like in the sense of like presenting me. They've presented me multiple times. Mm-hmm. So they're a pretty important arts institution here in New York. Were you? Um, we, we we talked a little bit about your um, uh, about you know growing up and, and playing the violin and your your interest in more uh, your later interest in more contemporary music. Um, was it something? I mean, obviously your parents. Um, I don't want, want to say pushed you, but at three years old, you probably didn't have a lot of choice. They 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 wanted you to 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 play to play an instrument early on. Um, were they? What were their thoughts on this? Um, on this, this more contemporary, this you know, the, the Herbie Hancock's and the Thelonious Monk that you were getting interested in a little bit later. Oh, I, I mean, I don't think that they signed me up for classical music, classical violin, because they wanted me to um, value old European culture. Mm. I don't think that's why. It was really just that, like, this is something you can get your kid to do to keep him out of trouble like that's basically <laughs> what it was and i wanted apparently i wanted to do it you know i've come to realize that there's actually a lot of music in my family i mean mm. there aren't any professional musicians in my family besides me but like um last year my father turned 80 and uh, a bunch of my cousins and their kids came to celebrate and um so a lot of the a lot of people on my father's side of the family are musical, actually, because it the, suddenly like all the kids were playing instruments or singing or something. Like a, a whole bunch of music happened during that weekend, and um, it was clear that like it kind of seems to run in the family. Yeah. So and there were stories about my father being a very gifted vocalist when he was mm. little, but then it sort of was scared out of him. Like this isn't practical or something yeah. like that. And it isn't, you know, <laughs> but uh, you're, you're doing okay. I'm doing okay. It took a while. <laughs> the main thing I am is patient. So yeah. I was able to hold out for long enough. To, um, uh, but what I, um, you know, so I don't think that it was my, that my parents thought like uh, that there was any kind of, dif- you know, any kind of difference or major leap from yeah. like, uh, in terms of my musical involvement, it was just like, oh, this is a good thing. Mm. You know, he's keeping himself busy and it's out of trouble. Hands. <laughs> and he's, uh, meanwhile, still getting good grades. So yeah. let's not, you know, it seems to make him happy and keeps him social and he gets good grades anyway. So let's let him do that. And that's basically all it was. It wasn't like, oh, you're supposed to be listening to Bach, not to, you know, Michael Jackson or something yeah. like it wasn't like that at all. But you, um, you, you know, you you went to school. You studied math. I think you were in the, the sciences as as well. Um, 
were they uh, at, at what point at what point was it clear that this this is that you were going to be a musician that this was actually going to be a, a, a career path for you um, when I was about 23 um, some possibilities started to open up for me I mean it wasn't like but I would I was playing the entire time but actually in terms of um, really changing my life path mm. in order to put music at the center of it that was uh kind of late like 23 i mean it's late in the scheme of things when yeah. you look at what most musicians go through but on the other hand it was 20 years ago so you know <laughs> so i guess uh things that you know things have accumulated a bit since then and they were they were all right with uh with you you taking all those degrees and, and becoming a professional musician well no but no one would be <laughs> i mean you know, would you want your child to become a professional musician? No, especially not after, you know, after all those years of, <laughs> yeah. of college. Yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah, it was a bit of a left, a deep left turn. Yeah. Not a bit. It was a deep left turn. So it was hard for all of us. It was hard for me. You know, it was kind of like traumatic for me to realize that I had just set, spent six years working towards something that I'm now abandoning at the age yeah. of 23. Like that's more than a quarter of my life, yeah. you know? So it was all it was always interconnected though from the sound of it. I mean, you did your thesis on Well, that was later. Oh, okay. Um so when I left physics in 94 uh that was when I was in graduate school at UC Berkeley mm-hmm. and I left the physics program and then I was able to create this interdisciplinary way of studying music, this interdisciplinary PhD program that they kind of helped me. They let me hustle this thing. So um, it just bought me some time to sit and think and read and listen and play and write. And but these, but these, these disciplines that we tend to think of as being largely unrelated were always connected for you? Math well, I, and no, I, no, no. I mean, I didn't do math and music, anything. I mean, I any more than any other composer mm. uses numbers to put anything together. I'm just like any other, you know, I mean, like Coltrane use numbers you know it's not a um but no composer uses differential geometry to make music (laughs) like i I mean i was doing stuff you know i was doing quantum mechanics and you know field theory and and like group theory and stuff like that actually doesn't have much direct connection to anything or like what you're doing with music where you have like 12 discrete pitches and you can combine them and stuff like that that's like very rudimentary mathematically it's not really math that's worth talking about as math it's sort of like talking about uh, bartending as math Mm. you know like you put you know you put in (laughs) you put in quantities together in a certain proportion so yeah you're doing math but it's not like that's not the point of it right that's just like that's the underlying logic, but that's not what it's for, right? But that, I mean, that's exciting, though. You know, in terms of that thesis, that you know that you're um, that you're able to take these two things that you're interested in. Yeah, well, it wasn't math and it wasn't physics. What it was was cognitive science of music. So that's basically really actually thinking about music and the body and the mind. That's really what it was about. It wasn't about physics or math really at all. There was no. I really left all of that behind. Um, and I wouldn't really call myself very, uh, 
like I haven't really kept it up as in terms of like there wasn't really anything quantitative in my dissertation mm. you know or almost almost nothing like that it was mostly conceptual and kind of meta-analysis of other studies and mm. trying to bring to synthesize a lot of ideas yeah. from a lot of disparate fields yeah. you know that's really what it was and it wasn't actually it had nothing to do with math or physics so um i find myself having to keep clarifying that because <laughs> i think people want to tag me sure. with that it's sure. very it kind of becomes this like easy narrative that's like yeah. oh this is a way of bypassing i mean to me like you know the real story to me is that after i quit physics i made 20 albums over the last 20 years and each one of them is a different story that's dealing with a lot of different ideas so that's sort of to me much more important and then like the dissertation stuff i did which was about how music is made of bodily experience and bodily action uh that directly connects to my experience as a musician yeah both before and after I, I think the why, the reason why it's a, a, a nice narrative for us is um, in in, a, in I think in the way that the Thelonious Monk narrative is a nice one and this idea of um, approaching something familiar in a, in, a, in a different way and having a slightly different background and not going through all the traditional channels. So yeah, but I guess what are the tr- you know it's partly like what are called traditional channels in this field of music mm-hmm. or nowadays in western music in general uh is the conservatory which is actually not traditional mm. like that the conservatory is something especially when it comes to jazz or like a music school dedicated to the study of jazz which yes i didn't do that but what i actually did was i apprenticed with elder musicians mm-hmm. starting in like 1991 mm-hmm. you know when i was 20 years old and that's what I've done. That's how I really learned to play, play, like to actually put myself out there and open up and interact, groove and improvise and listen to the audience and all that stuff. I learned from being in the trenches with elder musicians mm-hmm. who let me do that with them. You know, that's the traditional yeah. way of learning how to play. Yeah. That's actually where music came from. Yeah. It came from people who did it before you who helped show you how to do it. Like, that's where it came from. Yeah. So it wasn't in a music school kind of artificial conservatory setting. It was in the setting of audiences and clubs and concerts and spaces where music actually happens. That's the tradition, and that's how I learned how to play and how to make music. So let me let me close on this. Let me just fl- flip around something that you had asked me a few minutes ago. Um, would you want your child to become a professional musician? <laughs> Um, I would support her if she did. Yeah. Um, it's, but it's not something you would wish on someone <laughs> because it's sort of, uh, I mean, it's a struggle, you know? Yeah. Um, I've been very fortunate. I mean, I've worked hard, but I've also had a lot of help from people and I've, uh, been, um, I've been lucky, you know, th- that things fell into place the way that they have. And, uh, I'm glad that people still listen. <laughs> there you go. That's BJ Iyer. Uh, I really, really enjoyed that conversation. Very, very happy that I had the, the opportunity to, to speak to him. Um, I think 
In fact, I'm, I'm about 100% positive that this comes across over the course of the interview, but my, my knowledge of jazz music just completely drops off a cliff right around 1975. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm happy that he let me pick his brain about that for a while. He's, he's somebody who very clearly uh, thinks about that a lot and, and just about everything else for that matter. So thank you so much to him. Um, thanks, uh, thanks to everybody at uh, Shorefire for for setting that up. Uh, thanks to thanks to Brian as always for ending the show together. Thanks to Mark and everybody else at the Boing Boing Podcast Network. If you like this show, there are plenty of other fine shows you can check that out over at iTunes. And while you're over at iTunes, you should take the opportunity to rate the show because we don't we don't ask much. We don't ask for we don't we don't ask for anything. Come on the show and, and beg you for money. It's just all I ask is you go and give us some give us some stars. Just give us a little little ratings love over there. Uh, if you liked what you heard, you can also send us an email. It's rylcast at gmail.com. Send us feedback over there. Uh, we've got a Tumblr. It's the first and best place to get all the ROL episodes and other related or semi-related news. That's rylcast dot tumblr.com uh, relatively new facebook thing that's another place where if you enjoy what we can do you can you can show it cost you absolutely absolutely nothing it can save for precious seconds off of your day uh, uh you know i think that's all i got that's all i got for this outro i'm running out of voice i'm getting over the flu uh it's been it's been it finally hit me it's really rough it's that it's a new york city flu which is extra extra rough and tumble so i'm gonna go i'm gonna go take a nap and 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 rest my voice because i've got uh, another interview coming up uh but i will be back just about this time next week with another episode of ryl mm-hmm.